Chapter 2 So it was, with wind demons for shipmates, that Alric, last prince of the royal line of Malnibane, returned to the last city still ruled by his own race. The last city and the final remnant of Malnibonean architecture. The cloudy pink and subtle yellow tints of her nearer towers came into sight within a few hours of Alric's leaving the fjord and just offshore of the Isle of the Dragon Masters, the Elementals left the boat, fled back to their secret haunts among the peaks of the highest mountains in the world. Elric awoke then from his trance and regarded with fresh wonder the beauty of his own city's delicate towers, which were visible even so far away, guarded still by the formidable sea wall with its great gate, the five-doored maze and the twisting high-walled channels of which only one led to the inner harbour of Umliad. Elric knew that he dare not risk entering the harbour by the maze, though he knew the route perfectly. He decided instead to land the boat further up the coast in a small inlet, of which he had knowledge. With sure, capable hands, he guided the little craft towards the hidden inlet, which was obscured by a growth of shrubs loaded with ghastly blue berries of a type decidedly poisonous to men since their juice first turned one blind, and then slowly mad. This berry, the Nidoil, grew only on Imbria, as did other rare and deadly plants. Light, low-hanging cloud wisps streamed slowly across the sun-painted sky, like fine cobwebs caught by a sudden breeze. All the world seemed blue and gold and green and white, and Elric, pulling his boat up on the beach, breathed the clean, sharp air of winter, and savoured the scent of decaying leaves and rotting undergrowth. Somewhere, a bitch fox barked her pleasure to her mate, and Elric regretted the fact that his depleted race no longer appreciated natural beauty, preferring to stay close to their city and spend many of their days in drugged slumber. It was not the city which dreamed, but its over-civilised inhabitants. Elric smelled the rich, clean winter scents, was wholly glad that he had his birthright, and did not rule the city as he had been born to do. Instead, Urkun, his cousin, sprawled on the ruby throne of Imrir the Beautiful, and hated Elric because he knew that the albino, for all his disgust with crowns and rulership, was still the rightful king of the Dragon Isle, and that he, Urkun, was a usurper, not elected by Elric to the throne, as Malnibonean tradition demanded. But Elric had better reasons for hating his cousin. For those reasons, the ancient capital would fall in all its magnificent splendour, and the last fragment of the glorious empire would be obliterated, as the pink, the yellow, the purple and white towers crumbled, if Elric had his way and the sea lords were successful. On foot, Elric strode inland towards Imrir, and as he covered the miles of soft turf, the sun cast an ochre pall over the land and sank, giving way to a dark and moonless night, brooding and full of evil portent. At last he came to the city. It stood out in stark black silhouette, a city of fantastic magnificence in conception and in execution. It was the oldest city in the world, built by artists, and conceived as a work of art rather than a functional dwelling place. 
But Elric knew that squalor lurked in many narrow streets, and that the lords of Emilia left many of the towers empty and uninhabited, rather than let the bastard population of the city dwell therein. There were few dragon masters left, few who would claim Malmobone in blood. Built to follow the shape of the ground, the city had an organic appearance, with winding lanes spiralling to the crest of the hill where stood the castle, tall and proud and many-spired, the final crowning masterpiece of the ancient forgotten artist who had built it. But there was no life sound emanating from Emilia the Beautiful, only a sense of soporific desolation. The city slept, and the dragon masters and their ladies and their special slaves dreamed drug-induced dreams of grandeur and incredible horror, while the rest of the population, ordered by curfew, tossed on tawdry mattresses and tried not to dream at all. Elric, his hand ever near his sword hilt, slipped through the unguarded gate in the city wall and began to walk cautiously through the unlighted streets, moving upwards through the winding lanes towards Urkun's great palace. Wind sighed through the empty rooms of the dragon towers, and sometimes Elric would have to withdraw into places where the shadows were deeper when he heard the tramp of feet, and a group of guards would pass, their duty being to see that the curfew was rigidly obeyed. Often he would hear wild laughter echoing from one of the towers, still ablaze with bright torchlight which flung strange disturbing shadows on the walls. Often too, he would hear a chilling scream and a frenzied idiot's yell as some wretch of a slave died in obscene agony to please his master. Elric was not appalled by the sounds and the dim sights. He appreciated them. He was still a Malnabonean, their rightful leader if he chose to regain his powers of kingship. And though he had an obscure urge to wander and sample the less sophisticated pleasures of the outside world, Ten thousand years of a cruel, brilliant and malicious culture was behind him, and the pulse of his ancestry beat strongly in his deficient veins. Elric knocked impatiently upon the heavy blackwood door. He had reached the palace and now stood by a small back entrance, glancing cautiously around him, for he knew that Urkun had given the orders for guards to slay him if he ever entered Imlir. A bolt squealed on the other side of the door, and it moved silently inwards. A thin, seamed face confronted Elric. Is it the king? whispered the man, peering out into the night. He was a tall, extremely thin individual, with long, gnarled limbs which shifted awkwardly as he moved nearer, straining his beady eyes to get a glimpse of Elric. It's, it's Prince Elric, the albino said. But you forget, Tanglebones, my friend, that a new king sits on the ruby throne. Tanglebones shook his head and a sparse hair fell over his face. With a jerking movement, he brushed it back and stood aside for Elric to enter. The Dragon Isle has but one king and his name is Elric. Whatever usurper would have it otherwise. Elric ignored the statement, but he smiled thinly and waited for the man to push the bolt back into place. She still sleeps, sire, Tanglebones murmured as he climbed unlit stairs, Elric behind him. I guess that, Elric said. I do not underestimate my good cousin's powers of sorcery. 
Upwards now in silence, the two men climbed until at last they reached a corridor which was a flare with dancing torchlight. The marble walls reflected the flames and showed Alric, crouching with tangle bones behind a pillar, that the room in which he was interested was guarded by a massive archer, a eunuch by the looks of him, who was alert and wakeful. The man was hairless and fat, his blue-black gleaming armour tight on his flesh, but his fingers were curled around the string of his short bone bow, and there was a slim arrow resting on the string. Alric guessed that this man was one of the crack eunuch archers, a member of the silent guard, Imria's finest company of warriors. Tanglebones, who had taught the young Alric the arts of fencing and archery, had known of the guard's present and prepared for it. Earlier he had placed a bow behind the pillar. Silently he picked it up and, bending it against his knee, strung it. He fitted an arrow to the string and aimed it at the right eye of the guard and let fly, just as the eunuch turned to face him. The shaft missed. It clattered against the man's gorget and fell harmlessly to the reed-strewn stones of the floor. So Elric acted swiftly. Leaping forward, his rune-sword drawn and its alien power surging through him, it howled in a searing arc of black steel and cut through the bone bow which the eunuch had hoped would deflect it. The guard was panting and his thick lips were wet as he drew breath to yell. As he opened his mouth, Alric saw what he had expected. The man was tongueless and was a mute. His own short sword came out and he just managed to parry Alric's next thrust. Sparks flew from the iron and Stormbringer bit into the eunuch's finely edged blade. He staggered and fell back before the nigromantic sword had appeared to be endowed with a life of its own. The clatter of metal echoed loudly up and down the short corridor, and Elric cursed the fate which had made the man turn at the crucial moment. Grimly, swiftly, he broke down the eunuch's clumsy guard. The eunuch saw only a dim glimpse of his opponent behind the back whirling blade, which appeared to be so light, which was twice the length of his own stabbing sword. He wondered frenziedly who this attacker could be, and he thought he recognised the face. Then a scarlet eruption obscured his vision, and he felt searing agony clutch at his face. And then, philosophically, for eunuchs are necessarily given to a certain fatalism, he realised he was about to die. Elric stood over the eunuch's bloated body and tugged his sword from the corpse's skull, wiping the mixture of blood and brains on the late opponent's cloak. Tanglebones had wisely vanished. Elric could hear the clatter of sandaled feet rushing up the stairs. He pushed the door open and entered the room, which was lit by two small candles placed at either end of a wide, richly tapestried bed. He went to the bed and looked down at the raven-haired girl who lay there. Elric's mouth twitched and bright tears leapt into his strange red eyes. He was trembling as he turned back to the door, sheathed his sword and pulled the bolts into place. He returned to the bedside and knelt down beside the sleeping girl. Her features were as delicate and of a similar mould as Elric's own, but she had an added exquisite beauty. She was breathing shallowly in a sleep-induced, not by natural weariness, but by her own brother's evil sorcery. Elric reached out and tenderly took one fine-fingered hand in his, put it to his lips and kissed it. Cimarron, he whispered, and an agony of longing throbbed in that, in that name.
Summer will wake up. The girl did not stir. Her breathing remained shallow and her eyes remained shut. Auric's white features twisted and his red eyes blazed as he shook in terrible and passionate rage. He gripped the hand, so limp and nerveless, like the hand of a corpse. Gripped it until he had to stop himself for fear that he would crush the delicate fingers. A shouting soldier began to beat at the door. Auric replaced the hand on the girl's firm breast and stood up. He seemed uncomprehendingly. He glanced uncomprehendingly at the door. A sharper, colder voice interrupted the soldier's yelling. What's happening? Has someone tried to see my poor sleeping sister? You're a coon in the black house, born, said Elric to himself. Confused babblings from the soldier and Urkun's voice raised as he shouted through the door. Whoever's in there, you will be destroyed a thousand times when you are caught. You cannot escape. If my good sister is harmed in any way, then you will never die, I promise you that. But you will pray to your gods that you could. Urkun, you paltry rabble. You cannot threaten one who is your equal in the dark arts. It is I, Elric, your rightful master. Return to your rabbit hole before I call upon every evil power above and blast you under the earth. Urkun laughed hesitantly. So you have returned again to try to waken my sister. Any such attempt will not only slay her, it will send her soul into the deepest hell, where you may join it willingly. By Anana's six breasts, you it will be who samples a thousand deaths before long. Enough of this, Urkun raised his voice. Soldiers, I command you to break down this door and take the traitor alive. Elric, there are two things you will never again have. My sister's lover and the ruby throne. Make what you can of the little time available to you, or soon you will be grovelling to me and praying for release from your soul's agony. Elric ignored Urkun's threats and looked at the narrow window to the room. It was just large enough for a man's body to pass through. He bent down and kissed Cimmeril on the lips, then he went to the door and silently withdrew the bolts. There came a crash as a soldier flung his weight against the door. It swung open, pitching the man forward to stumble and fall on his face. Elric drew his sword, lifted it high and chopped at the warrior's neck. The head sprang from its shoulders, and Elric yelled loudly in a deep, rolling voice. Ariok! Ariok, I give you blood and souls, only aid me now. This man I give you, mighty king of hell, aid your servant, Elric of Malnibane. Three soldiers entered the room in a bunch. Elric struck at one and sheared off half his face. The man screamed horribly. Ariok, lord of the darks, I give you blood and souls. Aid me, evil one. In the far corner of the gloomy room, a blacker mist began slowly to form, but the soldiers pressed closer and Elric was hard put to put them back. He was screaming the name of Arioch, Lord of the Higher Hell, incessantly, almost unconsciously, as he was pressed back further by the weight of the warrior's numbers. Behind the Murkoon, mouthed in rage and frustration, urging his men still to take Elric alive. This necessity gave Elric some small advantage. That and the runesword Stormbringer, which was glowing with a strange, black luminousness, and the shrill howling it gave out was grating into the ears of those who heard it. Two more corpses now littered the carpeted floor of the chamber. 
their blood soaking into the fine fabric. Blood and souls for my lord, Arioch! The dark mist heaved and began to take shape. Arioch spared a look toward the corner and shuddered despite his inurement to hellborn horror. The warriors now had their backs to the thing in the corner and Arioch was by the window. The amorphous mass that was less than pleasant manifestation of Alric's fickle patron god heaved again, and Alric made out its intolerably alien shape. Bile flooded into his mouth, and as he drove the soldiers towards the thing which was sinuously flooding forward, he fought against madness. Suddenly the soldiers seemed to sense that there was something behind them, they turned, four of them, and each screamed insanely as the black horror made one final rush to engulf them. Ariok crouched over them, sucking out their souls, and then slowly their bones began to give and snap, and still shrieking bestially, the men flopped like obnoxious invertebrates upon the floor, their spines broken. They still lived. Ariok turned away, thankful for once that Sirmaril slept and leapt to the window ledge. He looked down and realised with despair that he was not going to escape by that route after all. Several hundred feet lay between him and the ground. He rushed to the door where Urkun, his eyes wide with fear, was trying to drive Arioch back. Arioch was already fading. Arioch pushed past his cousin, spared a final glance for Simmeril, then ran the way he had came, his feet slipping on blood. Tanglebones met him at the head of the dark stairway. What has happened, King Elric? What's in there? Elric seized Tanglebones by his lean shoulder and made him descend the stairs. No time, he panted. We must hurry while Erkun is still engaged with his current problem. In five days' time, Imrir will experience a new phase in her history. Perhaps the last. I want you to make sure that Simiril is safe. Is that clear? Aye, Lord, but... They reached the door and Tanglebones shot the bolts and opened it. There is no time for me to say anything else. I must escape while I can. I will return in five days with companions. You will realise what I mean when the time comes. Take Simiril to the tower of Da'ar-Ur-Putna and await me there. Then Elric was gone, soft-footed, running in the night with the shrieks of the dying still ringing through the blackness after him.